South Hills, good morning. I'm honored and privileged to be here with you this morning. Uh, Chris and Ez are good friends. Uh, Chris is a very funny guy. Uh, we are closing out a series today on the seven deadly sins. We've gone through pride, uh, gluttony, wrath, sloth. We've been going through that. Uh, me and my wife have been attending here over the summer. We've loved it. It's uh, brought on some great conversations, some difficult and challenging conversations, but some really really great ones. It's been great to be a part of this community, to get to walk through this uh, with you. And it's my honor to be here with you and share uh, this morning. If we haven't met, again, my name is Wes. I brought a couple of photos. I brought a photo of me and my wife, uh, Taylor, if we have that. There she is. That's my better half, a sign of God's grace in my life that he quits on nobody. So that's Taylor. And then I brought a photo of our, our children, yeah. Okay, to the real parents, I know they're not children. I know they're just dogs and you're varsity and we're JV, but we're enjoying life on JV. Like, let me be happy. And yes, our parents are both disappointed that I'm showing you a photo of our dogs and not actual humans. Be patient. We're, you know, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Uh, on the right, that's my boy, my firstborn, Rush. And the little puppy who's currently 10 weeks old next to him is Rue. We just got her. And again, they're, they're the last, uh, the first and the last of our dogs before our parents kill us for not having kids. So that's our family. Uh, we are right down the street here in Costa Mesa. We're a part of the local community as well as the church community. Uh, it's great to meet y'all. Uh, we are going to talk about lust this morning because Chris is such a good friend that he left me to talk about lust and sexuality and how to deal with your desires that you don't want to talk with anyone about. So here I am, and here we are, and you're regretting bringing that friend to church this morning, but it's okay. We are going to make it through. But I do want to read and jump right into our first passage, because it is, it's a fun one. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 27. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than the, your whole body go into hell. Matthew 27, or 527 through 30. And the regret is just getting deeper and deeper in you right now. Uh, let's pray, because we're obviously going to need it. So let's pray, and we'll chat about this verse and what it means for us. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone who is here. Lord, we are um, about to wrestle with a, a difficult topic, a topic that can be uncomfortable, a topic that can be challenging uh, for all of us. And God, my hope and my, my desire is that this morning would be a morning where we find hope, where we don't find shame, where we find no reason to hide, no, no reason to, to step back, to feel like we're apart or like we don't belong or we're, we're on the outside, but that you would show us that you are with us and you are for us and you're near us and there's no reason for shame or for fear. So would you be with us, God? We thank you. To Jesus, let me pray. And everybody said, amen. So um, regarding this topic of, of lust or sexual desire, in church, um, me, my mom, my brother, we didn't go to church growing up. And 
all of my conversations about lust or anything of the sort really wasn't informed by God, the Bible, or any of that at all. If I was learning things about sexuality, it was through the television, it was through 90s R&B, it was through Boys to Men and Usher and a guy by the name of Keith Sweat who had some hits in the 90s. But that was the conversation. And when I stepped in, when I first started going to church, I was 20 years old, I was in college, I went to church, I was new to it, the whole thing, the lights, the worship, the hands in the air, the eyes closed, it was all weird to me, the people smiling, real strong Chick-fil-A vibes, smiles, it was everyone's pleasure. And I got, I've got a serious case of like resting jerk face. If I'm not smiling, I tend to look like I don't like you. And it was weird to be smiled at by all these random people. But Jesus got a hold of my heart and I remember I just wanted more. Tell me more about Jesus. How do I follow him better? How do I live for him better? And I showed up to a men's Bible study that met before service. And it was fine. We sat in a circle. We read through a chapter of the Bible, talked about what it meant. And then I got pulled into a small group. We broke off into small groups. It was like five of us. We sat in a circle. The leader was a really nice guy, asked us how our week went, how was life, how were our relationships, how can I pray for you and, and your second cousin and what she's going through and how do I talk to you and, and what's going on? Totally fine, totally normal, loving it. Things hadn't got weird yet. And then the leader of the group starts to ask how everyone's doing with Stanley. Now, I didn't know Stanley. Stanley also wasn't sitting in the group. So as a new member of the church, I'm wondering, hey, why are we talking about Stanley? Do we not like Stanley? Shouldn't Stanley be here? I feel like God wouldn't want us talking about Stanley if Stanley's not sitting in a circle. Well, as the conversation goes on and, and the leader asks each person, hey, how's it going with Stanley? Well, you know, me and Stanley, we had our issues this week and well, I've do, been doing better. And we went around and what I discovered sitting in the group was that Stanley was the code word for pornography and masturbation. Yeah, that uncomfortable feeling you got is the feeling that I had. Because talking at church with strangers about sex, porn, and masturbation is already weird. It's way weirder when you call it Stanley. It's way more uncomfortable when you name it after some random person none of us know. Like, how did Stanley get that? I don't know. Conversations around lust in church can be awkward, to say the least. Absolutely. But avoiding them because they're awkward isn't helpful. Neglect and silence on the issue isn't helpful. It's something we all engage with and deal with almost now more than ever. With the images that we take in, with the shows that we watch, whether it's Netflix or it's our Instagram feed or it's Twitter or it's Facebook, whatever that might look like for us or it's music, whatever we're taking in, these conversations and these things are happening. 20% of searches on a mobile phone in the United States with adults who are between the ages of 18 and 34 are sex-related. One in five. And you still may say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not one of those. I'm not part of that group, that 20%. Uh, I'm the other. Chances are you know someone who's a part of that group or you're raising someone who's a part of that group, or you're trying to avoid being a part of that group. You mentor someone, you coach someone. Some of you guys are teachers, and this is the world that your students are growing up in. 
This is the world that your students go to school in, and it affects all of us, and silence isn't helping us on the issue. So yes, it can be awkward, but silence isn't helping. And I do want to acknowledge that yes, it can be awkward at the least, but it can be damaging at worst. So I left that small group talking about Stanley. It was real uncomfortable, but I kept going back. I remember one of the first books recommended to me was this book called Every Man's Battle. And Every Man's Battle was with Stanley, apparently. And that became the center for my relationship with God, was if I loved God, I was managing this part of my life well. And if I didn't, then I clearly didn't. And Jesus was very, very concerned with how I handled this part of my life. This was the barometer, this was the measurement of my faith and my commitment and my love for God. So this became front and center of what it meant for me to be Christian, was how was I managing this? How was I dealing with this? Was I making progress? And if I wasn't, what did that say about my faith? And it became a really dark and a really shameful place really, really quickly. Because I started to ask questions like, is my faith real? If you really love Jesus, would you really still be struggling? If God was really a part of your life, wouldn't you have more power? Wouldn't you have demonstrated greater strength? Wouldn't he have freed you by now? Is God really hearing your prayers? You've prayed for help. You've prayed to be delivered. You've prayed for improvement. Does God not hear me? Do I not know God? What am I not doing? What's the problem? And there was all sorts of inner conflict and shame. And shame made it easier for me to just be dishonest. They continued to talk about how I wasn't making the progress that I wanted to make. Now take all of that shame and inner conflict and after being in ministry for 10 years, can I just say that that shame and that burden can be amplified for women in church. It can be heavier if you're a woman in the room. See, for guys in church to be struggling with lust, it's almost like a concession. It's like, well, yeah, sure they are. You know, lust is the male issue. It is every man's battle after all. And that's you guys, and you guys figure it out back to lot, and, and that's you guys. You are, but we deal with you, and we're used to it. We, we don't really expect a lot, and, and that's you guys. And the conversation that we have with our women are, well, you know, you are sort of without a sexuality until you get married. You go from being asexual to hypersexual. You go from hearing that sex is for marriage, here's a purity ring, you don't think about it, you don't talk about it, that's, that's dudes and that's their thing. And, and women, you're just, you're good and you're pure and you're a symbol of feminine purity until you get married and then a light's supposed to switch. You've been thinking for 20 years that sex is bad, gross, and dark, but the moment you got married, all of a sudden, I wanna have sex before every meal. I just, this is my life now. And that burden is a lot to carry. Statistically speaking, lust is not merely a male issue. But if we talk about it like it is, you make it that much darker and that much more difficult and that much more isolating for any woman in the room to have any sort of honest conversation, to feel safe, to feel at home, to feel normal and not like a demon. So before we dive into the text, before we talk about lust, I just wanna say to you 
that I don't want to have a simple conversation with simple answers as if you don't live in a complex world and sexuality isn't a complex issue. See, part of what 20-year-old me needed to hear was you're 20. Your hormones are through the roof right now. Biologically, purity is going to be a challenge. You were exposed to images when you were 11. You've almost been exposed for 10 years now. The neural pathways in your brain have already started to form and shape for the last 10 years through junior high and high school and now college. More than your faith or love for Jesus is at play on the weekend. It's more than just a matter of do you have self-control. It's a matter of the part of your brain, your limbic system kicking in, the part that's responsible for fight, flight, shelter, food, and sex that is determining your decision-making process when things are difficult. You're not evil. You're not worthless. You're not disgusting. You love God, and God loves you on your best day and your worst day. See, I don't want to have a conversation today that's for male or for female or that's between clean people and dirty people, righteous and unrighteous, holy and unholy. If we're going to have useful, transformative conversations around lust, there has to be nuance, there has to be humility, and there has to be honesty. And so our hope today isn't that you would walk out of these doors feeling discouraged, feeling ashamed, feeling disgusted with yourself, but that you would find hope, that you would know that God's love for you isn't resting on a singular issue. Lust is an issue that's brought up and talked about in the Bible. But if you look at Jesus' life, the sins he was most concerned with, to many people's surprise, weren't sexual sin. It was hypocrisy. It was greed. It was pride. It was the arrogance of the religious who were constantly condescending to those stuck in the mire of life. So I want to invite you into this talk about lust conversation from an elevator. Oh, hey, we're shoulder to shoulder. We're eye to eye. We're not having this conversation from an elevated position, but we're walking together. So how are we going to talk about lust? How do we define that beyond this idea of uh, a lustful desire or a strong physical desire for somebody? Our, def our definition today is going to be lust is engaging in physical or emotional fantasy to escape the work of reality. Lust wants the rewards of relationship without the requirements of relationship. See, lust at its core is escapism for the purpose of self-gratification. How do I emotionally or physically detach from reality in order to gratify myself? How do I get all of the rewards of what a relationship is supposed to provide without the work, without having to actually be in a relationship with a real person who has real wants and real needs and real preferences and real opinions and a real mood and has real days that are good and bad and influence how relationship happens. Because Les says, hey, it's easier to search the web than it is to walk into the other room, sit down, have a conversation, listen to how that person's doing, talk about their day, it's definitely easier to search 
than it is to make a bid, to put myself out there, to be open, to be honest, to talk about what they're going through. Lust isn't interested in that. That takes too long. Lust doesn't have the patience for real relationship. It's this faux relationship where all that matters is what I want and what I need and how do I get that. But we have to detach this idea of lust merely being something that looks like someone trolling the internet for pictures or images of people. Lust manifests itself in a number of ways. It's not just about imagining sexual activity. It's, it's defining someone's worth based on how attractive you find them. What about this? It's wanting your partner to be the sum total of all of your favorite traits of all of your favorite people with none of their deficiencies. It's scrolling through your Instagram feed, looking at smiling couple after smiling couple, assuming that couple is smiling because their spouse does all the things that your spouse doesn't do. Assuming that those kids who are smiling in that photo are as sane as they appear to be. That there weren't 300 photos that were taken and one of the 300, they looked at the camera and smiled and looked like the beautiful angels that they aren't. But we assume and we lust after and we desire, well, if they were just more alike and we dream about and we consider, man, I wish you had all the traits that they have. It's placing enormous expectations on your partner while being offended by their expectations of you. Lust isn't about admiring beauty, form, or physique. It's about indulging a fantasy that looks to take, possess, or use someone as a means to its own escapist ends. Lust depersonalizes and dehumanizes others. It's interested in giving the least and getting the most. The idea of giving the least and getting the most is a literal antithesis to the life of Jesus. Giving as little as you can and getting the most out of it sounds like a deal. It sounds like, yes, I bring my coupons to the store. I want to give a little and get a lot. That may work when you're shopping for groceries, but it's not going to work in a marriage. It's not going to work in loving your neighbor. It's not going to work in friendships. Jesus' life was always about giving not for himself, but always for the betterment of others. Lust is an issue because it causes you to live with a mindset and a mentality that's completely opposite to that of Jesus. It's not about the images. It's not about the internet. It's about a mentality and a mind state that puts you in a mind state that says, I need to consume always, and human beings exist, and relationships exist solely to please and satisfy me. That really is the heart of the issue. So if lust is our sin today, and that's the issue, and that's the problem, and that's what we're trying to get away from and untangle ourselves from, what's the virtue we should be moving towards? What's the counter virtue to this vice of lust? Can I first tell you what it's not? If lust is the issue, the thing that we're walking towards is not the words no and don't. 
if we're trying to walk away from lust, our solution cannot be simply don't. No, because it's bad. Can I tell you why when I was in school, I didn't want to go to church? Because church was a bunch of no's. Some churches had more no's than other churches. I coached football at a Christian high school. We visited a couple of different schools. I thought our school had a lot of no's. And then I went and saw people who couldn't show, you know, their ankles. For all of that repression of sexuality and the danger of someone's ankles being visible, Christians still get divorced at the same rate as their non-believing neighbors. We still search the internet at the same rate for the same stuff as our unbelieving neighbors. Repression, no, don't, because it's bad, it's dirty, dark, and you shouldn't, isn't an actual solution. It's not actually something you can move towards. It doesn't actually give you something new to pick up when you put lust down. It doesn't actually give you something to walk towards, to hope for, a vision for your life and what it could be like. A vision for you that we move towards life if lust is all you've known. So what then is our virtue that we move towards? I believe it's this. If lust, this fake idea of relationship, this counterfeit style of relating to the world is the issue, then the virtue we want to move towards is being courageous in relationships, being vulnerable. Now, what does vulnerability look like? Vulnerability means you don't have control of the outcome. It means I'm not sure how this is going to end up. That means I'm going to invest my time and my energy in a relationship and not be able to manipulate the outcome. That means I might do everything right that day. That means I might properly arrange the dishes in the dishwasher. I might wipe down the counters. I might send a few loving, sweet texts to my wife. And she might still get home and deny my bid to be intimate. And I only have to say intimate because we're in church and we don't like the word sex. But really what I'm trying to say is she can still come home and say no. And that's courageous to live your life in a way that says, I'm not going to control the outcome in the lives of everyone around me. I'm not going to control the outcome with my spouse but I'm gonna invest my time where I'm at. I'm gonna be open and honest and courageous and bold enough to be present where you are. Bold enough, courageous enough to be present in the reality that you occupy in your relationships. Not to turn away, not to look away, but to engage with them where they are. The call out of lust is into the dirty work of relationship. It's into the difficulty, the complexity of relationship. Now, what does Jesus say about lust? Our passage we read earlier is Matthew 27 through 30. That's the fifth chapter of Matthew. Matthew was a gospel that was written to the Jewish community. It was written to talk about who Jesus was to Jews. So the way that it's structured, the way that it's put together is to convince and to persuade those who are the Jewish faith, to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus. The first four chapters of Matthew, the life of Jesus is a mirror to the life of Moses. If you're new to church, Moses was the center of the Jewish faith. He liberated and freed Israel when they were slaves. 
He narrowly escaped death at birth. They were killing all of the children. He escapes. He's put in a basket uh, in the river. He escapes death. He frees their people. He leads them. The sea parts. He navigates them through the water and through the wilderness. And then he ascends up to a mountain, meets with God, and brings down the law. Now Jesus escapes death at his birth. They're killing children. He escapes, enters into Egypt. He comes back. He's baptized, enters into the water like Moses, goes into the wilderness like Moses, and then ascends up to the mountain. And they have a conversation about the law. All of that, all of those parallels would have been understood by anyone who was hearing this who was Jewish. It was their culture. It was what they grew up with. It was the narrative of who they were. It was their story. They owned it. And so it informs the way that we read it. So when Jesus, like Moses, goes up the mountain, he opens up with this. Matthew 5, verse 1 through 10, it says, When he saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and after he sat down... His disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Jesus ascends up to this mountain to speak with God's people, and he says to them, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the righteous, the holy, the perfect, the obedient, the clean, the pure. No, he says the kingdom belongs to the persecuted the meek, the humble, those who are hungry and thirsty, those who are poor in spirit. And suddenly the kingdom has become open to a completely new group of people, which would have been exciting for all of the imperfect people in the crowd. Like, yes, I've been kept out my whole life. Jesus says we're in, we're, we're here, we're, I'm in. But surely... There were the religious, the righteous among them who said, hey, hey, hold on. This whole thing exists around the idea of the law. What about the law? And so the next, the very next thing Jesus addresses after he welcomes everyone into the kingdom, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he addresses a a particular group in the crowd directly. The most religious, those who kept the law and added laws to the law to make sure they weren't breaking the law. Then he addresses them directly. And this informs how we understand everything Jesus says after this. Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, Guys, it's for the poor, it's for the meek, it's for the the persecuted, it's for those who don't have, it's for the have-nots. The righteous pipe up and say, oh, hold on a second, it's about 
the righteous and those who have upheld God's law and those who have walked with him. What about us? We followed the rules. Don't rule followers always want to make sure they get their due? I'm just saying, if you know a rule follower out there. Hey, what about us? And Jesus says, okay, what about the laws? Don't think I've come to throw it out the window. Those of you who keep the law, let me just tell you that the law demands more than what the most righteous in the group have brought forward. Uh oh, those guys, those are your righteous ones over there. Oh, them? Well, let me tell you, you have to be more righteous than them if you're going to enter the kingdom. Oh, those who keep laws so they can better keep laws, those who have laws for laws, you have to be more righteous than them. And again, Jesus speaking to a Jewish crowd says, Hey, you've heard that it was said. Oh, you. You know the law. You've heard this. You know this. And he says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one part of your body than the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of those parts of your body than your whole body go in to hell. What's Jesus suggesting? All right, guys, you want to be righteous? Going to need some eyeballs out of heads immediately. Uh, Can I ask you just a quick question? Can you lust without eyes? Can you lust with your eyes closed? Probably, Probably easier, right? If we're being honest, like it's probably a little bit easier. Don't close your eyes. Keep them open, okay? By removing eyes from heads, is Jesus removing the issue of lust? No. By cutting off a hand, are you still capable of lust? Yes, you've got another. And even if you took both, you'd probably be creative, wouldn't you? Okay. Is Jesus saying the people of God ought to maim themselves? Is he suggesting that this is going to solve the issue? No. But he is suggesting that the very spirit of the law is more demanding than the letter of the law. Those who are obsessed with how do I keep the letter of the law? How do I not commit adultery? How do I make sure that I'm not close to breaking that law? How do I set up laws around that law? Jesus is pointing out the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law was what? Love your neighbor as yourself and love them. Humanize my neighbor for my own personal gratification and love them at the same time. I cannot say to you that you exist for my pleasure and love you at the same time. The spirit of the law was always more demanding than the letter of the law. And Jesus says, oh, you think you've got it. You think you've done it and you figured it out. Let me tell you that even the most self-righteous in the group have not met the standard they claim to have met. Those who tie up burdens and place them on other people's backs have not lived up to the very standard that they've created for people to live with. Jesus is being very pointed in his argument. He's being very direct. He's being hyperbolic to make a point to the religious in the crowd. You don't have it figured out like you think you do. You're dealing in the letter. I'm dealing in the spirit. You can change yourself physically. You can remove your eyes and cut off your hands. But at the end of the day, lust touches the heart. And if you're going to ever have a heart be changed, that takes God and Jesus. 
That's beyond what you're able to physically do. That's beyond what you're able to accomplish for yourself. Now, are there principles that we can take from what Jesus has said in our own dealing and wrestling with lust? Absolutely. Can we remove things that are difficult for us? Absolutely. We actually have four things, four takeaways that we can work with as practices. We can adopt parameters on our thought life. Where, where does my mind drift? And not just where and whether or not it's good or bad, but where does it drift and why? What's appealing about it? And what does it say about what I'm looking for? Acknowledge your weak moments. What, where are the places that my mind drifts? Is it just when I'm hungry? Is it when I'm lonely? Is it when I'm tired? We all know we're different people when we're hungry. Ask my wife. We are different. What is it? Remove, uh, arrange your environment. Identify and remove triggers. The, the best way I've been able to think about this in my own life is how do I say small no's? What's the smallest possible no that I can say? College, this look like. You know what's an easier no to say? It's easier to just say no to replying to a text message than it is to saying yes to that text message, engaging in the conversation, getting in the car, driving, ending up somewhere with someone that I'm attracted to, and then having to say no in the heat of the moment. The no over here, heat of the moment, face to face with another human being, much more difficult no than, oh, I got a text. That's a small enough no, no. Smaller no, less on the line, easier to do. The fewer major no's, the better. If this is just about the internet, it's easier to say no to sitting down in the chair in front of the computer when I'm alone than it is to, okay, now I've sat down, now it's on, now we're connected, now I'm on the internet doing homework. Oh, here I am, I sort of have been triggered, now do I say no to typing and searching? Make your no easier. Say no there, because a small no is less demanding of you, and it yields a better result. You're going to be better at saying no to small things than larger, more difficult things. The last one, ask someone to hold you accountable. Have social, social support. Have structure. Invite a friend in. Talk to a friend um, about it, one that you know, one you've been involved with, who has the same goals for your life, who's aligned with that, who's aligned with the vision that you have for your life. So those are four things, four practices that you can take with you that you won't practice perfectly, but you can take and you can use and you can adopt and you can adjust to see what works better and walk with. But I wanna end the conversation here. And it's with this. The Christian belief is that Jesus was God in the flesh. That God indwelt humanity to be with us, to walk with us, to walk alongside us. The great purpose of God in his life was not to be with people, lead people, walk alongside us, be rejected by his own, suffer, die. The great purpose of that was not to offer a method for behavioral modification. Do you know there are other methods outside of the church that will help you modify your behavior? Freaking love therapy. Therapy is 12-step groups. You know that there's rehab. 
Do you know that there's therapy? Freaking love therapy. Therapy is great. And it's yield a whole lot of change that shame, guilt, and condemnation didn't. There are other methods of changing your behavior. If you have a desire to change, you have an investment you've made in that change and a plan and a structure and social support behind you, there's a lot you can get done as human beings. The great offer of Jesus isn't, hey, I've cornered the market on how to change your habits and how to create new ones. Jesus' message wasn't, hey, kick your old habits, I got new ones for you. It was, do you wanna be a new person? Because I can help with making a new identity for you. Where there's death, I can bring life. The message of Jesus was never, hey, I've got the key, here's how you get good and clean, and then come to me, and you're in, and you're a part of the group. It was never get good, and then we're good, and you're good, and just make sure that you stay good, and make sure that when you die, you've been good, and then we're good. It was always, I've called you good, I've called you clean, and you're mine, and that's who you are, and you're my kid. And if you've ever raised a kid or raised a sibling, you know that our kids do stuff that we don't like, but it doesn't mean that we don't love our kids. Jesus descends from the mountain, and unlike Moses, he doesn't bring with him two tablets carrying the law. He descends from the mountain, and the first interaction he has is this. It says that Jesus, when he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Lepers were considered unclean. They lived outside of the community. They had to shout out, unclean, unclean, if anyone were to approach them. And it wasn't just a medical issue within this community, within the Jewish community. They were believed to be cursed by God. Someone had sinned. They had messed up. Someone in their family or them, they had some deep, dark secret that led to this, that led to them becoming lepers. And so Jesus steps down from the mountain, and here's a leper, someone who's been shamed, condemned, made to live alone by themselves. And he comes before Jesus and he says, God, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him and said, I am willing, be made clean. The offer of Jesus in all of our battles with pride, sloth, lust, greed, wrath, with all of our vices, isn't just, hey, I'll help you change that habit. It's, hey, do you know that you're already loved and I'm with you and on your side and we're in this together, whether it takes a week, a month, two years, three years, do you know that I came back to adopt children, not merely to adjust your habits? But I've come to call you mine. Because until you know that you're his, can I just tell you that you can change your habits and you can be clean and you can be sober? But if it's always hinging on your behavior, it only takes one failure for you to end up back in the I'm alone and ashamed and in the dark. 
But if God walks with you through a process and he is by your side throughout, nothing threatens to take away the relationship that has grounded you and brought you to a new place, into a new life, with a new way of seeing the world and made you a new person. That is the offer that Jesus presents us. That is what he calls us to.